As promised, I am thrilled to announce that our tickets for Australian True Crime Live are now available. Join me in Sydney, Brisbane and or Melbourne this July. You can come to all three if you want. These tickets are expected to go very quickly, so be sure to secure yours by visiting the link in our podcast bio or you can head over to the Australian True Crime Facebook page. There'll be a nice link there for you. Update for Brisbane Australian True Crime fans. Brisbane is almost fully sold out for our live show. If you've been a listener for any length of time, you'll know how passionate I am about true crime stories from Australia. I'm looking very forward to an incredible evening together with you, sharing these captivating tales. We will have great guests as well, so, you know, we love a Q&A. If you've ever come along to an Australian true crime live gig, you'll know we love a Q&A with our guests. Don't miss out. Book your tickets today, and I'll see you in July for a memorable night out. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow wherever you are. Tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. This is a true crime podcast, as the title suggests. So please consider this your warning, that it's not suitable for children, and it probably will contain content that may be triggering to some people. Also, it's an Australian true crime podcast, so Australian Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander listeners should be aware it may contain the voices of deceased people. The producers of this podcast recognise the traditional owners of the land on which it's recorded. They pay respect to the Aboriginal elders past, present and those emerging. Is it useful for all of us to just hate on this person and lock them up forever and then have to pay for them as a taxpayer and for them to be mentally unwell and become more violent? Is that going to be useful 
Or is it better way forward to say, okay, how do we teach this person that you don't have to be that way? Our guest today is Dr. Renee Zarnow. She's an urban criminologist and an Australian Research Council Senior Research Fellow in the School of Social Science at the University of Queensland. The first and most important thing I want you to know about Dr. Renee is that she's much more down to earth and easy to talk to than her title suggests. I'd love to have her back to answer some of your questions and concerns in the future, so please bear that in mind as you're listening, and I'll remind you at the end of the show how you can get in touch with us. One of the reasons we're featuring Dr. Renee is that we've had some feedback about the number of offenders and people who work with offenders we've had on the show lately. Some of you find it interesting and beneficial, and some of you think I've started pandering to crims. That's a quote. Part of the reason we've spoken to more offenders in the last year or so is that we met Russell Manser. I'm sure you remember episode 281 of Australian True Crime with Russell, who is a former heroin addict and bank robber and now runs an organisation called The Voice of a Survivor, through which he's helped thousands of adults who were sexually abused in institutions as children to navigate the legal system, many of whom have criminal histories like his. Well, Russell's introduced us to a lot of people from similar backgrounds, and some of them have become guests on this show. I've endeavoured to treat them with compassion while also holding them to account for the harm they've inflicted on others. But I'm sure the balance isn't always perfect. Naturally, people tend to be on their best behaviour when they're being interviewed about turning their lives around on a podcast. So today, I'm letting my guard down a bit with Dr. Renee and expressing some of my own fears about things like youth offenders in my neighbourhood. And she's going to tell me why she thinks we all need to lay off with our home security cameras. Does my ring doorbell camera make me a potential vigilante? It's all to come with Dr. Renee. I do definitely think the only way that we can better understand how to respond to people who have become in a situation where they are offending is to listen to people who have been there. I have to ask you also, what word do you use? You don't like to use the word offenders. I say people who have committed an offence. It's like we no longer say drug users. We say people who use drugs because it doesn't define their whole self, right? That's not who you are. We have to remind people, like, that's not all you are. You're many things and you can choose to be many of your other parts, not that. It's difficult though, and you you would understand this better than anyone. How does this help? How does this not offend? How does this not break the hearts of the families of very, very innocent victims who get caught up in these people's lives? When you're speaking to a a couple whose daughter is murdered randomly as she's walking home from work... And then we're having conversations saying, oh, we shouldn't call them offenders. That word isn't helpful. People are people and, and everything that you've just said. How does that sit when when we have li- we're going to have listeners saying again, Michelle, you're pandering to violent criminals? Yeah, I think the biggest thing is we have to recognise that to be a victim or to be associated with being a victim is shit. Yeah. It's shit. Yeah. It's sad. You want to hate someone and that's normal, right? We have to let people grieve. We have to let people be angry. But we also have to say the person 
who was on the other side of that also has a family and they also have people who were part of their life or maybe they don't and maybe that's part of the issue. So I think it's one thing to recognise the emotions and to say they totally deserve to feel that way. Absolutely, that's legitimate. And another thing to say, but how is it best for society for us to respond? So is it useful for all of us to just hate on this person and lock them up forever and then have to pay for them as a taxpayer and for them to be mentally unwell and become more violent? Is that going to be useful or is a better way forward to say, okay, how do we teach this person that you don't have to be that way? I guess the argument would be why bother with that person? Why not throw that person away that person, and treat them as garbage? If they have failed the test to live in our society, I'm sorry about what happened to them as kids. I'm sorry about that, but now it's too late for them. They are what they are and I don't want them in my society. I'm scared of them. So can't we or shouldn't we throw them away and just get them out of our society, get them off our streets? So the only problem with that is particularly when we talk about like young offenders, for example, is it that it, from a purely economic point of view, it costs a lot of money. Jail costs a lot of money. And when they're in there, when people are in jail at the moment, particularly, you know, we've got to think about, we've got to run programs, we've got to do something with them. They can't just sit there all day. And if we're not doing that and we're not getting them back out, then they'll, they're just sitting there costing more than a five-star hotel each day for us to look after. So we're actually paying for them anyway. And like we can't be trusted with the death penalty. That's obvious. And so, I mean, the only alternative then is to pay for them each day, every day, forever. Yeah. And also, I guess, to try and learn from them, to try and prevent other younger people from ending up in that scenario. That's right. And the other thing is when we take people out of the community is that we lose connection between generations. We lose important role models in the community. It becomes a cycle in some groups in the community because, you know, then they don't have any adult males in there or they don't have with living in close proximity and within their family where they can actually learn good traits from. So if we teach those and we put those people back in the community with the younger people, then that's really a positive for the next generation. Then it gets tricky too because, again, Russell Mansa is, I believe, definitely a reformed character after a number of stretches in prison and also after a debilitating drug habit that he has recovered from. But he talks about being a kid in Mount Druitt and how everyone's dad went to jail for a while. It was just not frowned upon. It was not seen as a negative. Even though his experiences in youth detention and in jail as a young man were hideous and he was sexually assaulted in both cases and all of those things, because no one talked about sexual assault for one thing or being victimised in those institutions, everyone sort of talked about how tough they were in those institutions. So for the younger boys, it wasn't seen as a deterrent. It was seen as something that most dads did. Yeah, it's sort of seen as um, a way to become a man, like you do your stretch. And that's the problem, though, when this becomes the normal pattern of behaviour. So by trying to keep people in the community, we can break that sort of pattern. 
And what that means is, you know, we have to think of alternatives and we have to think of ways of keeping people in the community, particularly when we think that the majority of people in prison aren't violent offenders. No, well, Russell went for car theft as a teenager and he went to adult prison. Yep. Yeah. Yep. I mean, look, yes, if you're someone who gets your vehicle stolen, that's really shit. Yes. Right? It, it's awful. Not only do you have the, the problems of the inconvenience, but it makes you feel scared. It makes you feel like your things have been taken, your personal space has been violated. So, yes, that feels awful, but it's not actually a risk to anyone's life. There's no real reason why this person cannot be rehabilitated in the community. They're not an immediate danger or threat to someone's life. You know, so putting someone like that in prison is not necessarily the best option. No, and in that particular situation, that 15-year-old boy, who was quite a small boy, very young-looking, was put in adult prison and he was put in the protection unit because he was young. And, of course, the protection unit is full of sexual offenders. Yes. And he was literally locked in a cell every night with two rapists who did rape him constantly for months. So I don't think any of us wants that on our conscience for our stolen car. No. And also we've got to think when we put people into a group of other people who are also struggling with values and social norms, then how are they going to learn the values and social norms that society want them to have? So particularly young people, we put young people into juvenile detention with other young people who also haven't established the the norms that we want them to have and the understandings of society, and then they're the people that are around each day. It doesn't make a lot of sense in terms of reconditioning or, or kind of helping people to relearn. No, juvenile detention is something that I've found Australia's most violent men have had in common. And yes, coming out with that, with that and talking about feeling like you're fighting for your life every minute of every day in that environment. Has that changed much? Because I'm talking about older men. I don't get to talk now to men who have um, recently experienced that juvenile detention, but we, t- we hear about it a lot. We hear about these out-of-control kids and people seem very keen to put them in juvenile detention. The biggest problem is that Queensland has the highest juvenile detention rate out of all of the states in Australia. And one of the biggest issues is the majority of people who are in juvenile detention are actually on remand waiting for their case to be heard. These young people generally have quite a range of complex issues. So mental health, neurological, many of them have had family issues. So there's a whole complex range of issues. So you take all of those vulnerable people and put them in together. And you can just imagine the levels of chaos that might be happening at any one time. What then happens is if one young person, like for any listener who might have a child who has ASD, ADHD, learning difficulties, anxiety, and you think that there is these children who are in there who have also never experienced care or love, and now they're all in there together. Now, if any one of them experiences an outburst or a problem, then immediately this facility has to go into lockdown which means none of the children can come out and have their normal daily activities, right, because they have to get that under control. 
So the juvenile detention centres these days are set up quite well to try and have the children doing activities and things. But the problem is that it's difficult because there are so many people with so many needs and essentially to protect their immediate safety, as soon as one person is having a problem, then everyone has to stay in the lockdown. So it's really problematic. And every parent in Australia has had some insight into how lockdown affects children. And we're seeing now years later, I've got 14-year-old twins, and so we're seeing now years later, I thought they breezed through it. But there are lots of effects coming out now, school refusal and lots of things that are still happening and building, actually. But if you'll allow me, um, and, I, you know, it's hard to admit, I'm, I'm just going to have a really honest conversation with you about my fears because I think you're the right person to have it with because I think we fear these children. We fear them terribly. Oh, everything yes. you just, yeah, right, everything you're saying, I'm like, I'm compassionate, but I'm thinking, yeah, but I'm scared of these kids. I don't want these kids in my neighbourhood are going to school with my kids. I'm sorry for them, but where else? Where do we put them for want of a better expression? Yep. So, and I think this is one of the things. So people don't know what to do, but they feel scared. So when we feel scared, we get defensive. So it's absolutely normal for people to feel like, I don't care. I want them gone. I want them away. And the thing is, we like to in our mind, it's easiest if we sort of think to ourselves, well, they're different. They're not like my kids. So we can treat them differently because they're just not the same as everyone else. And honestly, I don't really know the answer because a lot of this problem is actually comes back to the children at a very young age who are coming from broken families. You know, we need better help for parents. I think we need better help for people, particularly for when their child is an infant, particularly children who have been born with fetal alcohol syndrome or when their parents have been using substances. So those children have got neurological illnesses and problems. They're going to have deficits. So we need earlier intervention. The idea of intervening and assisting families when children are much younger in Victoria, we now have free three-year-old kinder. And I wanted to ask you how effective you think that is and what other programs and things you, you think or you, you've you read about that could be brought into play. Because I know when I worked for Save the Children, I travelled to um, refugee camps on the Syrian border about five years ago. And the Save the Children's focus was three-year-old kinder. It was all about, I mean, these were situations that were dire, where children were still freezing to death every every winter in these camps and, you know, war was breaking out every now and then very close by. But they, their idea was that if you can support children at three and their families when they are three and feed them every day, it had a massive impact on their entire families and on the community. So, yeah, how big an impact do you think it is? I think most of the problem with these programs is around implementation. So the evaluation or how well they work is entirely around implementation. We can't just have these. Generally what happens with a program is that the worried well will attend. It can be very difficult to get people to attend who actually need to. And there's multiple reasons for that. They may not have transport they may not have a carer for other children, they may not be able to read 
but they may not have access to the internet. And these days, everything's on the internet. So people may not be able to attend. So that's one of the big things. So I think that one of the things that works really well is if you can do things like Communities That Care, which was a program that was trialled many years ago now, but it was kind of like they would have these sorts of things like a kinder class where it was it was kindergarten for parent and child when they were three to five years old but they would send a bus around to people in that suburb so if you could not come you could catch this little mini bus also there was multiple things going on in that community at the same time so it was integrated with a primary school activity that was providing like breakfasts you know, breakfast at school is really important and that can be a really good thing for parents to come along, the whole family to come along, have a bit of a feed. And sometimes, you know, this is all what people need to show that there's others in the community. What's frustrating for me and I know for our listeners is that so often when we talk to or about violent offenders, they come from the same suburbs around Australia. We're talking to men and about men who came from Mount Druitt who came from Elizabeth or the northern suburbs of Adelaide, who came from Broadmeadows in Melbourne or whatever. It's always the same suburbs. And when you speak to the women in those suburbs and the social workers, they don't have facilities. They don't have funding. And it's frustrating because we know that Centrelink and Medicare are very closely linked. They share the records. They certainly know when they want to cut somebody off the dole, how to do it and where everybody lives. Why don't they use that data to implement programs where we know that people are struggling? People are struggling with mental health. People are going to jail. People are, you know, is that unreasonable to ask? I don't think that's unreasonable to ask. And I think that these sorts of things have been tried before. The problem is that we have very short election cycles. Yes. Right. And so to get something like this, a intervening at three years of age, actually having some sort of concrete outcome, that's a long time. Yep. So with policy, at the end of the day, yes, we want to fix society. Yes, we want things to be better, but we also want to get back in. Yeah. So we want to have policies that are, are going to happen in our political lifetime that we can benefit from. In the next three years. Yep. This is a long-term plan. Right. And so at the moment, we're intervening at the end instead of at the beginning. And so what that means is it's a shift in our thinking and the public kind of need to be on board for that. How would you like to look five years younger? In a clinical study, people that had volume added with Juvederm Voluma XC in the cheeks perceived themselves as looking five years younger at six months after treatment. Look younger, feel like you. Add volume for lift and contour in the cheeks with Juvederm Voluma XC. Reverse signs of aging by adding volume to smooth laugh lines with Juvederm Volure XC. 
For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. If you're looking for plump lips that last, you need to know about Juvederm Lip Fillers. With Juvederm Volbella XC and Juvederm Ultra XC, your lip look, whether it's subtle or bold, can last up to one full year with optimal treatment and no additional maintenance. Find a licensed specialist and see if it's right for you at Juvederm.com today. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Add fullness to lips in adults over 21 with Juvederm Volbella XC or Juvederm Ultra XC. Do not use if you have severe allergies or a history of severe allergic reactions, or if you're allergic to lidocaine or the proteins used in Juvederm. Tell your doctor if you have a history of scarring or taking medicines that decrease the body's immune response or that can prolong bleeding. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. As with all fillers, there's a rare risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. For full important safety information, visit juviderm.com. We've heard from specialists before about this idea, to put it really simply, that when children are born, certainly with neurological issues like that, from parents who've had drug and alcohol issues during when they're in utero, and then if they're born into situations where there's violence or, you know, not affection when they're tiny babies, things like that, that it's like if you're building house and that first slab that goes down is wonky and then everything that you try and build on top of that the way that a brain grows if you think of that as the building everything's a bit crooked nothing builds straight and strong and that's how we end up with children adolescents and adults who are lacking things like empathy and when you start to hear that a person has grown up without empathy that's really frightening and that makes you feel like, well, then what, what do we do with such a person? It also makes you think, though, giving that person punishment and more harsh treatment is pointless because they've already experienced plenty of that. Yeah. So the only way to really start to combat that is to give that person a love but also responsibilities so the other thing that, that is worth thinking about is what they're doing in other countries with adults. They haven't tried this with children, but is set up prison environments. So people who have offended, they will get set up in a little community where each person has a responsibility to keep that community running. For example, someone might be in charge of planting 
and growing the seeds, uh, growing the food. Someone else is in charge of the kitchen, cooking. Someone else is in charge of the laundry. Now, if these jobs aren't done, no one's eating, no one's sleeping in clean clothes, it's like teaching people, well, number one, you're needed. You have a job. But number two, you have a responsibility to others. So I think that one of the big things is teaching people about responsibility, but also how good it feels to be part of society. I'm actually needed by someone. It's not like I'm invisible and people just don't care. This is one of the really key elements to our society and that keeps our society going. You know, it's important that I obey the rules because if I don't, everything falls over. Some people are saying that they feel like juvenile crime has increased and what we're seeing is certainly the chronicity of offending seems to have increased. What's chronicity mean? So severity and the same people over and over and over. But, you know, some of that I think is perhaps on the back of the COVID lockdown because for some children who are living in problematic home settings, which isn't necessarily because of the parents' fault. Maybe the parents have to work long hours. Maybe there's only one parent at home. You don't know. But going to school may have been their only constant connection with someone else who checked in on them. We lost a lot of kids and they just didn't go back, right? And, and you know, we're still trying to recoup some of those losses now. And I think that will take a little while. Are you finding, you know, people talk about, certainly in Melbourne, it's been an ongoing conversation. I was talking, thinking about ethnic gangs, which has been a conversation in Melbourne really from the day Melbourne was born. Yes. Um, There were Irish girl gangs apparently, you know, after the, the famine when they brought out Irish girls and all of that. But the question I'm asking is that I know that there are South Sudanese families who have sent their children back to Africa. They've sent, I know of families personally who've sent some of their sons back to Uganda to uh, boarding schools and to family in Uganda because they felt like their kids were just not facing positive futures here in Australia after all the trouble they went to to move here and of all the hopes and dreams they had for their families, they just got to the point where they thought there's too much temptation for our sons to get caught up with bad crowds here and they've sent them back. So there's a couple of issues that are that are sort of co-occurring. Number one is when we bring when people arrive in Australia, um they tend to settle in areas where they can find people who have similar values, similar cultural understandings, maybe speak their language. So they might all kind of be living in relatively close proximity. Also, they had the services there that they might require. So that's really important too. What then happens is other people avoid those areas. So I don't want to go there. In Melbourne, we have a a real history, though, of criminal gangs, established, very grown-up criminal gangs taking advantage of young people. Yep. But this is the, the problem here, though, is that not just about these gangs taking advantage of young people, but these young people from particular races not being accepted into other social circles. Because it's not just a pull, you also have to have a push. So there's a push and a pull. So you don't just go off into a criminal gang because everything's holly jolly at school. Like that happens because you don't get on with people at school 
the local footy kids don't want to play with you. There's this kind of coupling between the push and the pull. And this tends to happen because we have these sections of our society that are stereotyped in a particular way. And particularly Africans are very visible. They're a very visible group in our society. And so that makes it um, more difficult for Australians, I think, to be more accepting. So what can happen there is that we get this kind of pushing and this pulling at the same time. And the problem then too is when something does go wrong, it is always these young kids from one of the backgrounds that is the scapegoat for all of this criminal activity and for things going wrong then it's not just there is, oh, there's criminality going on here. It becomes because of their ethnicity. The other thing to think about in this day and age, I think, is about those people who are moving from being a young person to being an adult on their own. So there's this kind of um, lurchy space, particularly young people now, who those who got caught up in COVID, those who may have um, like social connection issues like ASD and those sorts of things, and then they hear all this media around, oh, young people are terrible, they're all criminals and this and that, and where do they go and what do they do? Because university now, lots of that's online, so they're not really socially interacting. There's lots of jobs now where, you know, people work from home. So I feel like there is also this kind of, space of of young people that we're just kind of dropping particularly if you're not someone who is um can read and write well because everything's online and you know like this is why young men tend to be more likely to get caught up in things like conspiracy theories and these sorts of things because they watch video they don't read documents yeah right and video isn't going to give you critical evidence-based research yeah you're right that's a whole other world isn't it youtube and and kids watch youtube all the time they don't watch tv anymore they don't want to watch shows at night they're flipping through tiktok through youtube i know my kids sometimes come out and ask me some crazy things that they think are news i'll go is it true that china's about to um, send missiles to Australia tonight kind of thing. I'm like, oh, my God, where do you read this stuff? Yeah, and we have this flattening of the information hierarchy where everything looks the same, right, whether it's legitimate or whether some yobo from down the street just made it up, it all looks the same. And this is what we see when people come out with outlandish things on the, on social media um, and then the next person shares it on, shares it on, shares it on, and suddenly we just it becomes a social fact that someone has actually made up and you know this is this is a real problem absolutely no wonder they they're frightened and and fear i think can breed outlandish behavior oh totally and like we've seen this like speaking of um young people like doing outlandish things um you probably saw on the weekend when that group of young boys from Sydney tried to ensnare the pedophiles. 
Why, why are you here to meet a 14 year old kid? Why, why, why are you meeting a 14 year old child, bro? It is claimed a man has been ambushed after allegedly agreeing on a dating app to meet an underage teenager for sex. Why are you meeting 14 year olds, bro? Yes, let's talk about vigilantes. It pops up with us every now and then. We've had discussions with, certainly with people on, on both sides of the idea of the sex offenders registry. We've spoken about the fact that in the United States, the states with the open public sex offenders registry have seen actually increased numbers of sex offences and recidivism in that area and all of that. So we know that that conversation is fraught and not simple. It's complex. And it certainly leads to you know, people sort of taking the law into their own hands and forcing people out of their neighbourhoods and all of that. So how are you seeing this play out in Australia? Well, one of the things that we're seeing in Australia is certainly the rise of vigilanteism and the naming and shaming. So the use of visibility as a weapon. So the problem with this is that, A, it happens outside the law, B, there's no fact-checking, like we were saying before, right? Anyone can post up anything. And see, it leads to this kind of aggravation of very minor issues to become something that's actually becomes really like a big issue. For things like maybe someone just put up footage of them leaving dog poo, part of it is because during COVID everyone had to get online. Yeah. So even the people who were like the late uptakers – are now online. The other thing is that everyone now has a camera phone and everyone has CCTV. It's cheap and affordable. The problem is now that people have CCTV, they think they're part of the policing norm. Oh, I'm doing this because I'm really caring for my community. I'm putting up photos of juveniles who have done nothing wrong except walking down the street in a hoodie saying, watch out, and thinking I'm helping the community. Absolutely, actually, yes. I've seen Facebook um, posts from communities where they're saying, okay, yeah, there's a group of them, just be aware, wandering around this neighbourhood tonight, and they're not actually, they haven't done anything. They're doing nothing wrong. They don't own a house. They're a teenager. Where else are they supposed to be? Yeah, but they're like, lock, make sure your car's locked, make sure, make sure your tools are locked up. And, you know, one of the biggest issues is really that this whole, like, naming and shaming is that we actually can't possibly know what that can actually do to someone's personal well-being because we get into these echo chambers, right? Social media is an echo chamber. If, if you don't like the narrative or the values, you just get onto a different one right? So everyone agrees, oh, yes, you're right, good on you, yeah, yeah, yeah. So you put something on there, oh, look at this goose, he's done this, and that person says, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Now, eventually, over the course of probably two minutes, but 300 posts, suddenly this has become a really huge issue, right? Like, this is a big thing. Now, someone just comes in at this point and suddenly they think this person's done something significantly wrong. Yeah. Now, for this person who maybe is sitting at home on their own, they're seeing this message and they're like, oh, my gosh, my life is over. This could be out there for a long time as well. The surveillors are always on these community pages where the surveilled are never going to be there 
where they can actually say, actually, I was just wandering down to Macca's. So the teenagers are always the ones that are getting targeted because they're not on there to defend themselves. And so this is the thing, right? So then normal behaviours start to become like, oh, you should, people shouldn't be doing this. The other thing is the justice system is not supposed to work like that. Procedural justice means that everyone gets their voice heard. Right, So even somebody who has committed an offence or an alleged offence, they deserve to have their side of the story heard. So many of the problems with this vigilante justice is that we've not heard anyone else's side of the story. Maybe you've seen a bit of CCTV, but we don't know what's happened there. The other issue with some of this vigilantism is that it can actually cause the person to end up with a criminal offence against them. So there's a case in Townsville it's several years ago now, probably two years ago, where someone was chasing someone in a stolen vehicle. So someone stole a car, another person went chasing them, they saw it on Facebook that, they was, that this car had been stolen. They took off chasing the person During the chase, they crashed into an innocent motorcyclist and killed that person. The vigilante is now spending 12 years in jail. And deservedly so. Right? So you don't know how this is going to go because you're not trained. No. You don't know how to manage these situations. You don't know where it's going to go. The other thing is it's not equally distributed justice. It's just like haphazardly choosing a victim and then being like, well, this person is who we're going to put all this on. So that's not the way justice is supposed to work. I did a a survey, a study of people's opinions about online, what's appropriate, what isn't appropriate, do they post online, do they not. And what's really interesting is that our norms about what is okay and what isn't okay has completely changed and it's not necessarily in line with legal what is legal and what isn't legal. So I asked people about three situations. Number one is, you know, you're running late for a meeting, someone has parked over the white line of the last car park. You take a photo showing their number plate and identifying them. How appropriate would it be to post like or share this sort of thing. Everyone's like, no, not appropriate, not appropriate. I was like, right, okay, fair enough. This was a 1,000 people living in Queensland, right, just random people who were surveyed. The second one was that you find out that as someone who has been charged with a sex offence is moving into your neighbourhood and you find out the address. How appropriate is it to share, like or post this information? The majority of people said they would not post it, but nearly everyone said they would share and like it. Wow. And that's doxing. That's not legal. No, it's not. But it's interesting how they're like, but I'd share it, knowing that they could ultimately say, he, someone else did it first. It was already there, yeah. right? So that's how they Now, the last one was your CCTV footage picks up a young person in your backyard. They're not near your house and they haven't damaged your property, post, share, like. Yes, 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 right? 
Now, we cannot identify young people, even if they have broken the law. We're not supposed to. Like traditional media can't. But the problem with with social media is that it's not bound by the same legalities that traditional media is bound by. No fact-checking. You can put up anyone's faces. There's none of this. And it sounds creepy. As you're saying it, I can hear people going, well, yeah, well, you know, it is scary to think of young people in my backyard. But then if I think back to being 15 and 16, I was wandering around the neighbourhood with my friends and I probably was in strangers' backyards. I was certainly in their front yards stealing their gnomes and all sorts of shit. And when I think now of the the footage that I see sometimes online saying, do you recognise this kid? He was near my patio. Or door knock and dash. Yeah, totally. The problem is, though, is it's it's very much a cycle of the more information we have, the scared people get. So what we also found with this study is that people who are online and constantly scrolling, they have the highest fear of crime. People who create content have lower fear of crime than people who just scroll. The other thing that I say to people who want to start some of this stuff on their own by putting up something that's like, you know, this person has done this to me or that to me or I know about this. Now, in five years' time, they might not want that to be on there. They might not want other people to think that they're not friends with that person or they don't get on well with that person. Yep. Or the other thing is you can never control the way the rest of the community is going to respond. Sometimes we get this feeling that social media is actually quite intimate, particularly when we're on our mobile. Like you're on your phone and you're walking from the car to the shop and you see a post coming you think, oh, yeah, I'm just responding to this one person in three seconds. This is just something like the water in three seconds. You've not thought critically about where the information came from. You've not thought about anything else. Now, the problem with any with that is, A, it's stuck there. It's not like when you have, say, an off comment, like a comment off the cuff. It's in text. One person could sit there and read that many times. Yeah. Also, you don't know how someone else is going to interpret it. Some bozo on the other side of the nation might read that and respond in a very violent manner. Yeah. Or might take that offline. The other thing is increasingly, and this has been happening for a few years, but I find now it's turned to normal people where they used to do it with celebrity stuff, is the news, the boring old normal news turns this into news. Like I'm just looking now at a news site, right, and there'll be stories about uh, post causes backlash and it's just a normal person who's posted their story about their holiday on social media and for whatever reason it's it's gone viral and there's a backlash to it and so now it's reported on international news sites. So people who would never in a million years have seen that social media post now have an opinion about it and are probably going to go to that person's social media and give them what for about it, comment on it. And so the thing that we have to remember is what used to be once a day news is now all day news. Yeah. So traditional news also have to be constantly coming up with stories. So what that means is that a lot of this stuff just gets posted, rebranded. So that also makes people fearful of crime, right? Because whether it's talking about like vigilantes constantly posting about things, whether it's about the news, 
constantly noting this stuff, it's not actually that more crime's happening. It's actually that we're just talking about it all the time and a lot of it hasn't even happened. We're just actually inflating just disorderly behaviour or things that we're intolerant of now. I mean, kids walking down the street, dog poop being left on the on the patios. I mean, things that we've just become very intolerant of is just, it's not a crime. So all of this stuff where people, A, start to normalise taking crime into your own hands, which is never the right thing, but B, all this naming and shaming on social media where perhaps you're going to be um, naming the wrong person, which is what's happened a lot with Megan's Law over in the States that we were talking about earlier, um, where they have the sex offenders' um, addresses publicly available. Is that, I mean, like, A, we know how slow administrative sites are at keeping up to date. So oftentimes people have moved, someone else is living there, so they'll get attacked. Um, It could be someone else who lives with the person. You don't even know either what the extent of their offending was. Yeah, and also just to sort of give an example, I know some listeners will be saying, well, if you're on the sex offender registry, you're on it for a reason. But we've heard of stories where people can be on the registry for having consensual sex with somebody who is a year or two younger than them, you know, for example, in a relationship with somebody who's not of legal age, but they themselves are only a year over, things like that. Yep. So it is important to to note that, uh, yes, not everybody who's on the registry has committed an offence that we would consider dangerous to our families. Yep. 17-year-olds have been put on the list who had a sexual relationship with a 16-year-old um, who was a consent, was consensual, but they were under the age. Yeah. What does your day look like? I don't know if you have any two days the same, but um, you're an urban criminologist and an Australian Research Council Senior Research Fellow. But, I mean, that's a lofty title, but having spent some time with you, you're a very down-to-earth person. What is it you do day-to-day? My day-to-day is doing a bit of teaching, doing a bit of supervising, and then also I do work talking to the police. Sometimes I'll talk to other groups, so... Um, at the moment, I'm doing a lot of work with Neighbourhood Watch and then with other groups, like I'm involved in victims groups and also like school groups. But I do like large data analysis. I like to think about daily life and daily mobility and how that influences what people think and who people know and what social supports people have. So in starting to think about places in our community that can be really supportive, like this local shopping centre um, where you have, like, familiar strangers. So, for example, have you – do you ever catch public transport or go to the shops at the same time? Yeah, I've got lots of familiar strangers around here. I know exactly what you mean. And you don't really know them. Yeah. But you do get to do the, hey, how are you going? How nice is that? Yeah, it's you know, great. And what we're finding with the research that my colleague Jonathan Corker and I are doing is that this is actually not socially benign. So these people have a significant influence on our mental well-being, mm. and this is one of the reasons I think during COVID that we all felt very lonely. Yeah, it interrupted our place-based social interactions with familiar others that were actually really important to our sense of belonging. I belong to a greater community and people mm. 
will miss me. So the other flip side then of committing crime is having social supports and community cohesion, so good relationships in the community that can support people even if they're having a tricky time. Thank you to our guest today, Dr. Renee Zanow. If you'd like to send a message or comment to be featured in a future episode with Dr. Renee, you can message us through Facebook or Instagram, and there are links in the show notes in this episode. You can also hear more from Russell Manser on his own podcast called The Stick Up. If you need support after listening to this podcast, you can call Lifeline on 13 11 14 or contact 1800 Respect on 1800 737 732 or 1800respect.org.au. Indigenous Australians can contact 13 Yarn on 13 9276 or 13yarn.org.au. Thank you for downloading this episode of Australian True Crime. We'll be back next week. Why don't more infant formula companies use organic, grass-fed whole milk instead of skim? Why don't more infant formula companies use the latest breast milk science? Why don't more infant formula companies run their own clinical trials? Why don't more infant formula companies use more of the proteins found in breast milk? Why don't more infant formula companies have their own factories instead of outsourcing their manufacturing? We wondered the same thing. So we made Byheart a better formula for formula. Learn more at byheart.com. As promised, I am thrilled to announce that our tickets for Australian True Crime Live are now available. Join me in Sydney, Brisbane and or Melbourne this July. You can come to all three if you want. These tickets are expected to go very quickly, so be sure to secure yours by visiting the link in our podcast bio or you can head over to the Australian True Crime Facebook page. There'll be a nice link there for you. Update for Brisbane Australian True Crime fans. Brisbane is almost fully sold out for our live show. If you've been a listener for any length of time, you'll know how passionate I am about true crime stories from Australia. I'm looking very forward to an incredible evening together with you, sharing these captivating tales. We will have great guests as well, so, you know, we love a Q&A. If you've ever come along to an Australian true crime live gig, you'll know we love a Q&A with our guests. Don't miss out. Book your tickets today, and I'll see you in July for a memorable night out.